I don't know what brings you all to a topic like this. Um, it is something that a lot of people um, you know, struggle with as far as uh, with mental health. We have a lot of people in our lives who perhaps maybe struggle with depression. You might have children who struggle with depression. Um, but I hope that everyone is going to be able to come away with some, some helpful information from uh, a talk like this. And I know it's warm. Um, I try, I, I'm not going to go the whole time because I do want to give some opportunity for Q&A at the end. Uh, but if you need to get up and just go cool off, I totally understand. <laughs> um, so, uh, real quick, uh, I am Sarah Bracey. I am the uh, psychology program coordinator at Welch College, and uh, I'm also the campus counselor. I have been uh, counseling since, um, oh, 2008. Yep. So it's been a while, and. Uh, I've come across a lot of um, different ideas about what depression is and where it comes from. And uh, so today we're gonna talk uh, a bit about um, our understanding of just really mental illness in general, but we're also gonna sort of hone in on uh, specifically depression. And so our goal today is to try to move away from more secular understandings of mental health and more towards what is a solid theological understanding for psychology and counseling and mental health in general. Um, I have uh, seen a lot of um, really, really great um, doctors and clinicians who um, work from uh, what we call a medical model and believe that everything about you that is psychological is biological. And that is definitely a trend we see all over, you know, uh, the United States especially, this medical model. Uh, we're starting to move a little bit away from that though, in that right now where we're at, and especially our culture today, is what we call a biopsychosocial model. And this is where, yes, a lot of it is biological, but now clinicians, uh, the American Health Association, or American Medical Association, they're uh, acknowledging that yes, there are some things that are definitely psychological and sociological as well that's going on. And so um, this is the predominantly the model that most clinicians, if you go to the doctor today, this is usually the model that they're working from. However, for us as Christians, we acknowledge that this model is great, but it's still missing something. And that is that we're also spiritual beings as well. And so the theological model for understanding psychology is also going to incorporate a spiritual aspect as well. Now, what do I mean by spiritual? Well, um, think about issues like morality, a person's ethical background, um, their sin, their suffering. All of these can also be wrapped up in their mental health, their well-being. Um, oftentimes, what we see is an overlap in these various areas. You know, uh, sometimes we see more of a biological component 
where, yes, they actually have something that's happened to them. They've had maybe trauma to the brain and it completely changed their personality. Or you might have someone who has a hormonal imbalance and that is causing some of their mental health issues. Psychological um, would include things like their emotions, their behaviors, um, what are those things about them, their motivations that could possibly be um, uh, their cognitions, the, uh, swaying them in a certain way, affecting them psychologically. And then sociology would include all of those things that are like their family, their upbringing, their cultural background, those elements can also impact a person. And like I said, we tend to see overlap. And so with that overlap, it's kind of hard to figure out where, you know, it's kind of the chicken and the egg phenomenon, which came first. And uh, so we're going to get to that. So in developing a theological understanding for psychology and counseling and depression, um, I draw a lot from a man named Eric Johnson. He's a Christian psychologist. He's written a book called God and Soul Care. And uh, this is a book that I actually require my students who participate in Christian counseling uh, that, they, that they read because it's so rich with this theological background for how we do ministry. So he gives some uh, good definitions here to kind of get us going. Um, he talks about how sin is automatically predisposing us to not just oppose God, but also subvert his glory. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how sometimes it's sin that's causing mental illness. Not always, but sometimes it is. Suffering also can be a factor in a lot of people's mental health. Um, if you were in a previous seminar that I did today, I talked about how sometimes suffering can actually cause people to sin because it's too much suffering. And so they can't handle it and they end up um, participating in some really unhealthy behaviors. They become addicted to things and trying to um, self-medicate. And so sometimes too much suffering can lead to sin. And then sometimes we're just damaged, you know, we're damaged goods. Um, some people are born with certain uh, genetic disabilities, you know, that are keeping them from being able to live a life that is glorifying God in the same way as someone who wasn't born with those same disabilities. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this damage and how the damage is usually in that biopsychosocial realm, whereas the sin and suffering is more in that spiritual realm. Now, we do want to acknowledge that in our world, in our culture especially, um, it's not as bad as it used to be, but we do have stigma towards mental health issues. Now, it's not completely our fault, okay? We were created good. You know, we were created in God's image. Therefore, when we see something that is deficient in some way, Maybe it's in ourselves, maybe it's in somebody else. We naturally develop a stigma towards that. And we need to be mindful of that because God especially cares for those people who are stigmatized, for those people who are disadvantaged. And so we need to be aware of the possibility of our own uh, thoughts 
and stigma affecting the way we minister to people who suffer from mental health issues. And so I don't give an excuse for the stigma, but I do try to explain where it comes from and how everyone experiences it to some extent because of how God created us. So it's a, something that we have to sort of fight against. So let's focus our attention specifically on depression. This is why you're all here, I'm sure. So depression can look a lot of different ways. Um, the one thing about that is that it is typically characterized by a tremendous amount of sadness. Now, it's important to note that this sadness is not just, you know, feeling down. It's not just having a bad day. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll tell my husband, you know what, I'm just having a blog day. And it's just, you know, that happens to us as humans. It's a, it's a natural reaction to living in the world that we live in. We're going to feel sad from time to time. However, this is something that is pervasive. It's not just feeling down. And uh, it's a, a sadness that just continues, that most people who suffer from depression, this is not something that just goes in and out. This is persistent. And it has been called the common cold of mental disorders because it is so pervasive. There are so many people in our culture who suffer from depression. It was the number one reason why people sought counseling up until the year 2017. And then it became replaced with anxiety. And now anxiety is the number one reason that people seek out mental health treatment. Um, however, depression is still holding strong at number two. So chances are you know someone who suffers from either anxiety and or depression. Let's talk about, a little bit more about the symptoms. So it's not just feeling sad, although feelings are definitely there. A lot of times depression is characterized by some really negative, persistent thoughts. Um, usually these thoughts are very self-critical. Um, they're typically, you know, pessimistic in a lot of ways. But it's not just in the way, what things, uh, what are the things that they think about, it's also how they think. You know, they have problems with their memory. Uh, sometimes they have really a difficult time concentrating, um, or they're having thoughts that are very self-destructive. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Um, the behavior, uh, you probably are well aware, well aware of if you've been around someone who suffers from depression. Uh, they tend to isolate themselves, which is very scary because it is that isolation that often leads to the worsening of symptoms. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. They have a very difficult time with just regular sort of functioning, you know, being able to get up in the morning go to work, take a shower, you know, you'll notice that they, they have sometimes a hard time with personal hygiene. Um, and it's not because they're, you know, lazy. It's just that they, the effort that it takes to be able to do some of those things is too much for them. So you'll also know that some of that behavior shows that, you know, they're, they're struggling with certain things that most, peop most people who don't suffer from depression, they don't think twice about. This is just your routine. Uh, the physical symptoms, a lot of fatigue, um, a loss of energy, they don't have the same interest that they had before in certain activities that they've enjoyed. They've lost that interest. They've become a bit more apathetic. 
And uh, you also see a lot of times they'll either not eat at all or eat too much. And the same thing with sleep. They either sleep too little or oversleep, typically. Um, and oftentimes you'll see that they complain about aches and pains. You see this especially with children because children and teenagers don't always show the same symptoms of depression as an adult. Um, so a lot of times children, they don't have quite the vocabulary to express what they're feeling. They're used to either my stomach hurts or my head hurts. You know, they don't have quite the understanding or the self-awareness sometimes to be able to express the other things that are going on. So they usually complain of a headache or a stomach ache. Another thing we used to see is that children who struggled with depression also seemed to be, or seemed to complain that they were bored all the time. And that's usually really like uncommon for children to be bored. Because if you think about it, they have such active imaginations. You know, a child who's you know, under the age of eight or nine should never be bored, right? You know, they should always be able to entertain themselves. But a lot of times these children with depression were complaining about boredom. And so that was kind of one of the clinical symptoms we were seeing a lot. Unfortunately, with technology, uh, we see the uh, complaint of boredom a little bit more. And so uh, you kind of can't always use that as a symptom nowadays because of how technology has sort of always kept uh, a lot of children entertained. And when you take that technology away, they don't know how to occupy themselves. And then lastly, I'll mention here is spiritual. So um, keep in mind that spiritual symptoms, like we said, could be the result of sin, suffering, or some kind of biopsychosocial weakness. Um, typically, the symptoms incl may include a loss of faith. They feel very apathetic towards their faith. They feel dis disconnected from God. Um, they can be confused about their beliefs, or maybe they're just frustrated and angry at God. So these are just some of the symptoms that you might see. Now, it's important to talk about how we don't see the term depression in the Bible, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. Um, oftentimes, you'll see the, um, the words of, of sad, downcast, discouraged. Um, and usually, what's interesting about these passages is that it is someone saying they're feeling this way but they're going to put their hope in God. We see that commonly with David in the Psalms. He's feeling this way, but he's going to continue to choose to hope in God. And I think that's really important for us to, to see and understand that um, hope is so important to someone who is struggling with depression. When they lose hope, that is when we must be on our guard because that is, that's typically the precursor to suicide. And so hope is so important uh, to instill in people, that hope that things can change, that things are going to get better. So we see um, various people throughout um, the Bible who have been described as uh, having experienced periods of intense sadness. I'm not quite willing to say they suffered from depression, but we do see that sadness is does occur throughout scripture. I love this passage from 2 Corinthians 
I won't read all of it, but you see the suffering that's taking place. Afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And so we see throughout um, how there is a great amount of suffering in the world, but yet we choose to put our hope in something that is unseen, that's something internal. Also, I wanted to include in this talk just some common myths that I hear sometimes about depression. Um, the biggest one is probably this first one, that all depression is the result of some kind of personal sin or lack of faith in God. And um, I just, I, I think this can be incredibly hurtful to people when, I mean, this is not something they choose. People do not choose to be depressed. And so when you have someone who is suffering and they just hear, oh, well, you need to repent or you need to put, have more faith, that is so hurtful to them. And so we want to avoid uh, having that mindset. Also that it's caused by self-pity. You know, well, you just need to stop feeling sorry for yourself. They would if they could. And, um, or that it's a sin for a Christian to be depressed. You know, um, this idea that, oh, Christians, we need to be happy, we need to be hopeful, we need to put our joy in the Lord. And so, you know, if you're depressed, you obviously must not be doing that. Um, and, or you're not a Christian. And that's kind of tied to the first one a little bit too, you know, that um, this is not something that, like I said, someone's choosing. Um, that all depressed feelings can be removed permanently by spiritual exercises. Well, you just need to pray, or you just need to read your Bible more. Um, I'm not saying that depression can't be lessened by doing some of these spiritual exercises, um, but we need to be careful that we're not putting all of our eggs into that basket, so to speak. Remember I said that a lot of times with these mental illnesses or, or, or mental health issues, you see overlap with other areas of a person's life. If you just focus on the spiritual, you're missing out on some of those other areas that the depression may be affecting or coming from. And that antidepressants are the best form of treatment. And we're gonna talk about medication a little bit more in just a moment. Um, you know, I might even say that another myth is that um, antidepressants are, you know, taking medication is a sin. You know, there's, I see a lot of people who are very anti-medication when it comes to mental health. And I think that there is an appropriate way for us as Christians to respond to medication and the topic of medication, but we need to be very careful we're not too far on one side or the other. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment. The causes of depression. There are so many, and I will not go through all of them, but I do want to include some of these up here. Um, as I mentioned before, it could be biological. Um, I had a client several years ago, uh, this young woman who I was seeing for depression, and, uh, you know, I primarily, of course, work with college students. So uh, when a student comes to the college, you know, they're away from home. They're not able to go home and see their doctor usually as frequently when they're in school. And uh, one of the things that I'll ask my uh, clients is I'll say, when's the last time you went to the doctor? You know, when's the last time you had some blood work done? 
And um, so uh, she was not able to go to the doctor. It's been a while since she'd been to the doctor. And so we were working on all these other areas of her life, trying to figure out, you know, what could possibly be causing the depression. And I mean, I saw her for weeks and weeks and nothing was getting any better. And it's very discouraging as a clinician to just see no improvement. And so there was a break at the end of the semester and she went home, she went to the doctor, found out she had a thyroid issue. Two weeks on that medication, the depression was gone. And it made me feel so good to know that it was biological, that, oh, thank goodness, we found out what was causing it. Now, I'm not saying everybody's going to be the same way, but for her, it was biological. And so once we were able to figure out what that was, she got so much relief, and it was so, so good to see that. So possibility for biological issues. Um, psychological, cognitive, we talked a little bit about. I'll just mention real quick the learned helplessness. Sometimes when people have been battling depression for a long time, they feel like they've tried everything, nothing has worked, why keep going? Why try this? It hasn't worked in the past, why should I even do this? And they've learned this helplessness, this, this sort of thinking that why should I, why should I do this? It's not going to work. Um, let me move on because I want to make sure I give time for questions. Um, the social environmental causes are many. And I mean, think about this. Your culture, sorry, <laughs> the, the world that you live in, your work, your family, your friends, they make a huge impact on your life. And when something disrupts that, you lose your spouse, you lose your home, one of your children pass away. That is a major, major event in someone's life. And so we don't want to discount these social environmental causes that could be linked to the depression. Now granted, um, you know, it's the chicken and the egg thing, remember. We don't know what came first. Was it uh, a depression that's caused by, by a, bio, a biological cause that is now interfering with their work because they're not able to get up and go to work in the mornings and now they've lost their job, you know? Or is it the fact that they lost their job and now they're upset because they've lost that routine and that has caused the depression? There's so many different ways to look at this. So we wanna be very careful that we don't miss out on how all these areas can overlap with one another. Oftentimes, <clears throat> the causes of depression, like I said, can be viewed as the consequences of having depression. Could it be sin? Could it be suffering? Can it be a form of biopsychosocial damage? So that is one of the reasons why depression is so difficult to treat. What is the root issue? What's the root cause? Oftentimes, too, depressed people, they're not active. They're not like 
you know, all gun ho about, hey, I'm going to go to therapy and I'm going to take my medication and I'm going to do, you know, they're very passive. They aren't motivated. They tend to be pessimistic. And so the very symptoms that they're suffering from are also keeping them from getting healthy. And so that's another reason why depression is so difficult to treat. And so let me uh, walk you through what most Christian counselors are going to do to try to help. Now I understand you're not all going to be professionals, but this may be helpful for you in your church, just working with people you know who suffer from depression, being a, a friend to them, ministering to them, or this may be something that um, you know, like maybe your child suffers from depression and you wanna know like, what's your counselor going to do? Or if we take them to therapy, what sort of things are they gonna work on? So let me walk you through some of this. Now, the goal at the beginning is to try to get this person into an active dialogue, to try to get them talking. Like I said, they're withdrawn, they're passive, so this is really hard to do, to get them into, uh, you know, motivated. Um, and so sometimes after a session with someone who's suffering from depression, I'm exhausted because I feel like I've been pulling and pulling and pulling just trying to get them involved. So listen attentively. Occasionally, you know, reassure them. You know, make sure that they know, yes, there's hope. Yes, there, change is possible. I mean, think about it. Sometimes I still have people who will ask me, do you really think people are capable of change? Of course I do. <laughs> Why would I be doing this if I didn't think people were capable of change? Why would we, as Christians, evangelize if we didn't think people were capable of change? So, yes, of course, ensure that, reassure them with that. Maybe you want to share some facts with them about depression, you know, um, if you feel comfortable doing that. Wait patiently for them to talk, ask questions, occasionally compliment them, especially if they say something positive or um, you know, something that's optimistic. And gently share scripture if the time is right, if the moment is right, if it comes up naturally. You want to avoid coming off as preachy, you know, throwing Bible verses at them and seeing what sticks. You know, that's not helpful. And avoid confrontation or persistent probing questions or demands for action, at least at the beginning. Now, it may be that they get further enough along in their treatment that you can start sort of confronting them. But this is not something you start out with right away or you just scare them off. And so be very, very gentle with them, especially at the beginning. So typically, when I am doing counseling for depression, I usually follow these steps. First, I want to assess how severe the depression is. Is this someone who has been struggling for a few weeks, or is this someone who's been battling it for years? Is this someone who is having frequent thoughts about hurting themselves uh, or hurting someone else? And so I want to try to assess how severe it is. Um, and I'll talk about suicide in just a second. Second, deal with the physical. Um, you know, 
Are they getting enough sleep? Are they eating? Are they getting up in the morning and taking a shower? Um, are they, um, uh, have they, have they, are they taking vitamins? Vitamins is a big one. You know, um, I had a, a child, um, a young client who, well, she was a preteen. Um, she started taking vitamins at the age of 12 and it dramatically changed her, her, her uh, emotions. And I think we don't talk enough about, um, about proper nutrition, I don't think enough, and how it affects mental health. Um, other types of medication, you know, um, we may get to, but it depends on their severity, and I'll come back to that in just a second. So deal with, um, I deal with the physical, you know, also, when's the last time you went to the doctor? Have you had blood work done recently? That kind of thing. Then I work to try to resolve the psychological and possible spiritual causes. Now you might say, well, why don't you do, deal with the spiritual at the beginning? One of the reasons you, you can't deal with the spiritual at the beginning is because sometimes you just haven't built enough trust with that person. You know, for someone to confide in you that they're struggling in their faith, or that they're dealing with some sin in their life, like, people aren't going to hand over that information right away. You need to build trust with them. Now, sometimes, even by this third step, I still don't have the trust yet. So we actually move on to number four. I had a client several years ago who we worked and worked and worked, and um, she was just not getting any better, very similar to the other one. Um, but hers was not biological. It was sin. She was having an extramarital affair. And, but it took months before she was able to confide in me that that's what was going on. And she wasn't dealing with depression. She was dealing with anxiety. And of course, of course, that's where your anxiety is coming from, this sin in your life. Um, so the spiritual is a lot more delicate you know, people will tell you all the time about some of their biological, but when you're dealing with spiritual issues, you want to make sure that you've built the trust there to be able to address some of those things. Number four, developing social support. Social support is so crucial. Um, sometimes I have, especially with students, I'll have them in my office, and I just think, you don't need me. You just need a friend. You just need someone to talk to about this. And, uh, and so social support is so critical for someone who's struggling with depression because they want to isolate themselves. And they need people in their lives who are going to say, uh-uh, no, you're coming with me. We're going out. We're going to go do something. We're going to go take a walk. They need that social support to get them to um, interact Number five, helping them with their faulty or distorted thinking, as I mentioned. A lot of times people with depression suffer from these cognitive distortions that they've grown up with their entire life. You know, I'm not good enough. Why would anyone love me? You know, I'm, and, and, and they repeat this over and over to themselves and to, you know, they, then they believe it. And then assist in any sort of social or environmental influences or possible triggers that may be also influencing their depression. All right, let's talk about medication. <laughs> so usually someone who is suffering from some kind of severe emotional disability, 
is going to require medication, okay? Now, medication is not meant to be something that someone just takes every day and that's it, okay? That's not really what medication is designed for. That may be what the pharmaceutical companies want, but uh, as a clinician, that's not the purpose of medication. What medication is meant to do is to bring someone to the point where they can take a more active role in therapy so that they can get out of bed in the morning, so that they can go to their doctor's or therapist's appointments. And it's through therapy and it's through counseling that they're able to make the changes they need to make to figure out what is that root cause for their depression, assuming it's not biological. Um, now, what gets into kind of a gray area is this idea that their depression is completely biological and they need some kind of antidepressant and that's it. But I would still argue that just because the depression may be completely biological, that doesn't mean it's not affecting the other areas of a person's life and that we need to address those other areas as well. So a, a depressed person shouldn't be relying on medication alone to get better, and in uh, severe cases, counseling by itself may be useless. Um, you know, talk therapy. If, if someone is suffering from depression, you know, being talked out, I'll tap, I can't speak, talked at all day, that's not going to help them. Uh, sometimes and so um, sometimes you have to have a balance of both the medication with the therapy ideally uh, carefully managed medication will increase their activity it'll increase their responsibility and they're going to be able to learn the techniques that can eventually supplement or hopefully supplant the medication you know we don't want people to be on medication their whole life so eventually we want to give them the tools so that they don't need it anymore uh, so most people are able to be weaned off their medication. However, those who are suffering from more serious depression may need to be on it their entire lives. And so um, I have found that because people's biology, your biological makeup changes, sometimes people have to change their medication you know, every couple of years because their biology is changing as well. And so that's also something a lot of people have to deal with, is that they'll find something that works for a few years, and then they got to change it up. And that tends to be something that's more common with, like I said, more of those severe cases. All right. Um, I do want to mention, of course, the threat of suicide. Um, not everyone who's depressed is suicidal. Not everyone who commits suicide was depressed. So it's important to keep that in mind as well. But um, if you know someone who you think might be self-harming or, or thinking about this, you know, ask them. Bring it out in the open. Um, because an open discussion is less, it, um, it decreases the likelihood that it's going to happen. Sometimes people think, oh, well, I don't want to talk about it because if I talk about it, it'll make them think about it more. It's actually the opposite. Because what you're doing is you're letting them know that you see them that you see that they're struggling, they're hurting, and you want to help. And so do something, you know, get a third party, 
remove anything that could possibly be used to hurt them, uh, create a safety plan, call the police, take them to the hospital. There's so many things that you can do to help them. And 30 minutes before this seminar, I received a message from a good friend of mine from back home. Her son just committed suicide yesterday. And this happens. We know people that this affects. And so it is likely that you will face a suicide or a suicide attempt in your ministry at some point. And it is devastating. And so t make sure you take that seriously. I also want to mention that healing can be slow. And that's one of the things that's sometimes so painful for families is that they think, okay, well, they're going to therapy, they're taking medication, why is it not changing? And that's because healing takes time. And so if it happens at all, and sometimes it doesn't, um, but we need to remember that we live in a fallen world with faulty bodies and that this is not meant to be heaven. And so sometimes our hope is in what's to come and looking forward to that new earth, looking forward to the time where there won't be any damage. And I, I can't wait. Um, I'm gonna go quickly through these so we have time. Uh, preventing depression, help people to trust that God knows their pain, that God is there, that God is listening. Um, help people to also understand the nature of depression you know, just by participating in a seminar like this. This is, you know, helping you understand as well what's going on. That the possible causes could be sin, they could be suffering, they could be some kind of damage. Uh, you could learn skills also for dealing with depression. You know, uh, managing anger, managing stress are all good things to learn. Uh, learning to change or control those self-defeating thoughts that everyone has, by the way, in some, to some extent. Uh, find networks of support, and just keep physically fit. Go to the doctor, have regular checkups, you know, sleep enough, eat well, you know, do all the things that you know you're supposed to be doing. Sometimes it's helpful to reframe our suffering. And this goes for everyone, not just those who suffer from depression. As difficult as suffering is, sin is vastly worse because sin separates us from God. So we need to be mindful that someone who is suffering is prone to sin, and we want to try to alleviate that suffering as much as possible so that they don't, it doesn't lead to sin. Now, a lot of therapists out there, a lot of secular uh, therapy, um, and even some Christian therapists, they've taught their clients and their patients to avoid suffering at all costs. But in truth, Suffering should be reframed, not glossed over. And so when facing suffering, it's important to keep in mind the story of Job. I mentioned Job earlier in one of my talks that, you know, it's important to lament and practice lamentation. Both Paul and James reframed their suffering in these passages here. But ultimately, the purpose of suffering is relational. It's a communion with God. God is trying to tell us something through our suffering. And so sometimes as pastors and ministry workers, you have a special opportunity to help people 
understand their suffering in a way that is not getting taught anywhere else um, and what suffering ultimately means. And so um, here I just have a couple of things to keep in mind. You know, King David asked, why am I so discouraged? Why am I so sad? And then wrote, I will put my hope in God. And like I mentioned at the beginning, hope has the ability to heal in ways that we can't explain. Uh, Pastors, ministry workers, you need to instill hope in your congregants, but don't do it so much that your, uh, your, your sheep are completely reliant or dependent upon you. You know, we are continually pointing people to Christ, to God, to put their hope in Him, not us. And so, with especially those people who are suffering from depression, who are dealing with especially the spiritual side of things, we need to make sure that they continue to have that hope, that they can put their hope in Christ, that the, we have a God who understands and sees us and knows our suffering, who has experienced suffering. And when you understand that, when you see that, it changes you. And I'm not saying your depression will go away, but it will help reframe that suffering in a way that makes it more manageable.